All right. So here we are. And we are at uh, number sutra number 340. And I understand, Tom, that you have a question. Am I correct in that? <laughs> so if we can find the microphone. Yeah, something novel. I thought it would be a novel beginning for our, our program. Okay. I think it fits in with the, our Samyama discussion over last week because Samyama requires such intense concentration and focus. Absorption in, <clears throat> yes, the concentra- yeah. attunement with and absorption. Yeah. Could you restate and then perhaps talk a little bit more about Swami's um, definition of willpower? Mm-hmm. You know, it's used to tune into a certain level of consciousness well, and I'll, stay I'll just say what he said. Um, he said... And this is just, you know, this is not definitive. This is just like a comment that he said actually in a couple of places. That willpower is the capacity to discriminate between different stages of consciousness. And then he added to that and to be able to do it quickly. (laughs) You know, just quickly and turn your attention. And it was just, it was very interesting. He said it in a couple of places. This is... Um, just, I think all of you know I've been going over files of lots of notes. So I have lots of random bits of information that I have just been d- distributing like rose petals as they sort of come, or like raisins on the trail, or whatever you want to say. So, I mean, wh- what that, and the addition of being able to do that quickly is, you know, we, I w- what I was saying when I talked about it before was that we think of our willpower as being associated with the actions that we then take. You know, I have an inclination to drink, and instead of having a drink, I'll call my sponsor if I'm in AA. And I have, a, I have an inclination to, you know, sleep too late in the morning, but instead I'll get up and, and maybe do my sadhana more completely than I would if I slept in a little bit. So that's how we think of willpower. But Swami takes it a step back, and our willpower is the ability to discern what is the most expansive consciousness from that which is more contractive? I mean, he's talking about willpower for the devotee. And then simply to flow with that more expansive energy. And the more willpower we have, the more easily we do that. That whatever floats across our consciousness, we just go. You wake up in the morning and you jump right out of bed and you say, I'm awake and ready, I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. Or, you know, it's just like you don't hesitate, you just go for the higher choice. So, I mean, that's a, it's a wonderful way of thinking about it. It also simplifies everything down to, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just where you put your attention. Because everything, and that comes up in, I don't know if we'll get there, but one of the sutras in, that we're coming to, all it's, a ma- it's just a matter of what we notice. It's not what is, it's what we notice. That's why willpower is discerning among those different states of consciousness, which are all equally available to us. But subconsciousness has lower energy than superconsciousness. Subconsciousness is the, often the default setting. Superconsciousness is the decision that we're making. By subconscious, in this context, it means everything that's gone before, all the, all the vrittis in your chakras. And, and we just flow along with whatever's been and that's subconscious living and then to create a new, a new more expanded reality is superconscious living. So to be able to just navigate your life and always be moving, listening to the superconscious draw instead of the subconscious habit, that's 
willpower. It takes great willpower to live on the spiritual path. And it doesn't mean that it's that difficult to do. It's just that you just can't go to sleep. That's all. If you go to sleep, the subconscious just takes you. And, you know, if your subconscious isn't so terrible, that's the, the kind of the tricky part. I mean, maybe your subconscious is, you know, full of murders, rages, and uh, horrible addictions, but maybe it's not. Maybe your subconscious self is pretty nice. And so you're still subconscious because all your being is pretty nice. And that's, um, uh, that's where, where Swam, uh, Master says, I, I feel like it's in whispers, but I'm not sure where it is exactly, where he says it's not enough to be good merely because it's your habit to be good. And, and most of us, by the time we're at this point on the spiritual path, our habit is to be good. And one of the, one of the enormous benefits you see of living in community being associated with a sangha instead of just thinking, I'll take these teachings and do them on my own, is at this particular age, on this particular planet, I mean age of the planet, uh, yuga of the planet, the standards are real low. And you can feel like you're pretty hot stuff spiritually just because you're not as um, utterly unconscious as almost everyone. And so you get a very false idea. And you're just, you can really just be cruising along on automatic pilot and not really gaining any ground at all. But because you're relatively harmonious and honest and a little more, uh, more sensitive to other people's feelings, you could just stand out as if you were actually something really terrific. Which, it's not that you're not good, it's that you begin to think that you really have accomplished something. I was just listening to Swami. I mean, really, you have ages to go. You have somebody like Swamiji around, and, you know, Jyotish and Devi and Jaya, and, I mean, I could make a long list, Haridas, huge long list of all the great souls that we've been fortunate to associate with. Hmm, gives you a clue. I could go a lot farther than I've gone, and that every day, um, having in front of you that potential of your own nature keeps you from getting a false concept of where you're standing, and it, it, it keeps you incentivized, so to speak. It's very, very important. That is one of the many benefits of community uh, and sangha, is that uh, you have people to measure yourself against. Ramani, you have to take the microphone. Incentivized. Did I make that up? Is that a real word? It's a word, isn't it? It gives you an incentive to keep trying because you realize where I am is not where I could be. I mean, that's why we had this discussion earlier about whether or not this is our last incarnation and whether or not we need to affirm with all our strength that this is our last incarnation. And I, my response to is, well, it works for some and it doesn't work for others. For me, I think of Swamiji as the picture of what it looks like when it's your last incarnation. And my life does not look like his. But that, to me, is a tremendous incentive because I can constantly be trying to move closer to what his life was like. And then I know exactly that I'm moving in the right direction. And it, it helps me a great deal to have had that picture in front of me. And I don't have to feel uncomfortable that I don't measure up. It's, I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. That's all we can do. Okay? Any other questions? 
I've always remembered that it's not enough to have it be your habit to be good because um, why is that important? Because you, you, when people ever ask me, you know, am I, how is my, how am I doing spiritually? My answer always is, are you, are you at the edge of your own capacity? And if you're not, then I remember a friend of mine told me he's never missed a meditation, um, morning and nights. So he just always meditates. But he, he, ans- he also said about himself, he said, for some people that would be a great accomplishment, but for me it's not much of an accomplishment. He just said it's that kind of regularity of practice is something that he just knows how to do. And so for him to do it is just repeating a habit that's already in place, where for someone else to come to that might be just a huge step forward in this particular incarnation. Now, of course, it's a great thing that he's able to do that. But he was honest enough to say that he's good because it's his habit to be good. So he has to work on another dimension to make it better. Yeah. All right, any other questions or comments? So we will go to 340. You know, I enjoy the fact, the fact that we're whipping through these, is that, although I see some longer ones here, Swami's commentaries are kind of short too. I think he too found that he was, well, here we are at the end of the book. And here we are in samadhi, and we're just talking about various angles of it. So I felt a little better. Number 340. By mastery over Udana, the current within the deep spine which raises kundalini through the shashumna to the brain, one gains the power of levitation and of leaving his body at will. Speaking scientifically, levitation is impossible. Yet, in Christian countries, too, many saints have been observed in a state of levitation. Joseph of Cupertino was uniquely disqualified from working in the monastery kitchen by his tendency to rise up off the ground. I think he broke a lot of crockery. Seriously. I think he did. And even to soar high above the monastery. St. Teresa of Avila was greatly embarrassed by her body's tendency to levitate when she was at her prayers, try as she would, however, to cling to her pew in the church. It's a funny story, but that's how she herself tells it. Her intense devotion lifted her body uncontrollably into the air. How does levitation happen? When the Udana current in the deep spine rises forcibly to the brain, it exerts sufficient outward force to lift the body as well. The force of gravity cannot force it to remain rooted to the ground. In other words, you've moved outside the laws of the material world. You're no longer bound by gravity. We must remember that matter in itself has no reality. Everything is a vibration of consciousness. When one's awareness passes beyond the material realm, the realities of this sphere of existence cease to exist. It's a fabulous phrase. We'll go there in a moment. There's a wonderful story about Joseph of Cupertino. They talked about... uh, some Protestant, prominent Protestant clergyman who came to, to see him because he'd heard about him. And uh, the saint took the man's hand. And th- when Joseph started levitating, the uh, clergyman went up with him. And the way it's, they always tell the story is he went up a Protestant and came down a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, really the happy stories about that. Yeah. 
you can visit St. Joseph of Cupertino's body in the basement there. In fact, he was, he was confined to that he was confined to that basement room for a long time. Am I correct? Yes. We, on one of the pilgrimages, we went there because he was, so, he was one of those saints who was so inconvenient for the church because he, he did not fit any of their criteria of what made you an important member of the church. He, was, you know, he couldn't really do anything. He wasn't a, um, highly literate or highly accomplished or highly anything in any, in any sphere except purely the spiritual, of course. And everyone was flocking to him. And as Swamiji says, when that happens in the Catholic Church, if one priest, all priests are supposed to be ordained the same. And if one proves himself to be much more ordained than the others, they have only two choices. One is to ordain everyone at that level, which of course they can't do, or to get rid of the one that's disrupting things because, you know, everybody leaves their churches to go see the saint. So they hide them. So uh, he was put underground, underground meaning in some way basement place where we went on pilgrimage, one of our trips, and we visited his little rooms. And it was, I mean, it was, it was alive with the Spirit. And he had a, a doll of the baby Jesus, which was his Ishtadeva, which is the baby Jesus, his chosen form of the divine. It was, it was beautiful. If, if you're ever there and have the chance... It's really, it's really worth visiting. Ramani? Mm-hmm. Should we know what the Udana current is? I, well, I, I never heard of it. I never heard of it either. I never heard of it, so I can't say. The Udana is the current within the deep spine which raises Kundalini through the Shashumna to the brain. There you have it. Okay? It's not been part of the mm, normal teaching of what we hear, we don't hear about it. And I've never been one to explore that kind of esoterica, so I wouldn't be surprised if others, people other than me know a lot about it, but all we got right now is me, so I can't really say more than that. Okay. Um, you know, this, uh, as, we, as we've been doing here, we take these um, sutras, which in so many ways are, are beyond certainly my experience, but our, our everyday experience. But we always find something in it. I mean, just the mere fact that devotion can just move you completely outside the laws, even of this world, even the physical laws of this world. I remember uh, someone quoting Master to me that, you know, there's this inexorable cause and effect, the karmic law, the way it is. You know, the action equals reaction. It's metaphysics. But the quoted master is saying, but for devotees it doesn't always work that way. Which I've always remembered that because the guru can interfere. You know, the, the, the guru can take on the karma for us. The guru can dissolve the karma if he wants to. The force may be coming to you, but if guru knows it's not going to serve you to receive it, he'll literally put his vibration between you and it, just as, as Swami always describes it, if a strong man takes the blow, he can shield you with his body, and it, it might not affect him, where if you're smaller, it might crack you, or it's like an umbrella put up on a rainy day. The rain still falls, because it must fall, but if someone puts the umbrella over you, then you're not going to get wet in the same way. So even though all of these laws have to be fulfilled on a certain level, they can just be shifted by the presence of the masters in our lives. 
In other words, divinity changes everything. I mean, that's what it is when Master had all that suffering on his body at the end of his life. Apparently, you know, he had a great deal of suffering on his body. And he was working out the disciple of the karma, uh, the karma of the disciples. So think about what that means. That means that energy was in motion that was really tied to the ego and the reality of the disciples. But somehow Master was able to pull that energy and take it onto himself instead. And he never explains in detail how this is done, but this is something that highly advanced souls can do. I certainly um, am persuaded that Swami Kriyananda, whose medical condition was just completely without reason, was often just taking on karma for in different ways. I mean, there's the one story that I tell in my book about Swamiji, about the, uh, that man named Ram Leela, who was a motorcyclist, who was actually a hell's angel, and how Swamiji had that motor scooter. He had, I'll, I might as well tell it completely. One summer, Swamiji decided that he was going to get a moped to drive around the roads of Ananda, a very small motorized scooter. This was when he was, well, it was in the 70s, so what would he have been in his late 40s? And uh, everyone told him that it was a really bad idea because it was dirt, gravel roads. You know, you had to have some skill with those things. And Swami actually was very a good driver and very aware, alert, as you can well imagine. But... Uh, people thought it was a bad idea, but he absolutely insisted and he got this little moped and he, in the summertime, his costume was Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirts and he would, he would tootle around the community, not a lot, on that uh, moped with his absolutely straight spine like this and his Hawaiian shirts and his Bermuda shorts and, uh, you know, that was the days long before helmets or anything like that. And he had it for a month or so and drove it some and then one day he was coming up the, at that point there was no paved road through Ananda a village. You had to go around the Ananda property on what was called Sage's Road, which was an unpaved road. And there was a hill, a steep hill at a certain point. And he was going up that hill and just as everybody had feared, he slightly lost traction and the bike began to turn and it flipped over and the exhaust pipe laid itself right against his calf. And the exhaust pipe was really hot and the bike was heavy enough that it stayed there long enough to really do a really serious burn. Fortunately, somebody was driving right behind him, you know, got the bike off of him, uh, got him into the car, and then he went home. And then every amateur healer for 150 miles came and treated the burn until it was infected. (laughs) Or at least, you know, I mean, it's just like everybody was doing something to that. He didn't want to go to the doctor. He just sat there with his foot up in this really ugly thing on his leg for a while. And he was sitting there like that on some afternoon when Ram Leela, who was a devotee there at that time, Ram Leela was a, a huge muscular man. He wasn't a tall man, but he was a tremendous muscular man. His arm, his biceps were so big that he put his bangle around his neck on a chain because there was no way you could get this bangle to, uh, enough around his arm to stay on. And he, he was just everything that you would imagine a hell's angel to be, except that he was a really sweet guy and he really loved Master. He always wanted to be Swami's bodyguard. And Swami would tell him that he didn't really need a bodyguard as far as he could tell, you know, that he just wasn't under any threat. But it was Ram Leela's point of view in life. You know, that everybody needs a bodyguard and he was going to be his bodyguard. He was quite a character. 
Ramlila means the play of God. And Swami himself gave him, Swami gave him that name. And he admitted that he started laughing when it came to him. <laughs> so Ramlila comes in and he, he sees Swami's leg there. Let me think how this went exactly. He sees Swami's leg. Because he's Swami's bodyguard, he thinks maybe this is his chance. Maybe somebody done Swami in and now he can get revenge. Ramlila's all there, ready to bust the, bust the chops of the guy who did this to Swami. And then uh, Swami, I believe he asked me to explain what happened, and I explained that it was a motorcycle accident. Ramlila gets really uh, excited about this. And then he tells the story of being on his bike, which was a you know, real bike, and just going along, and then suddenly a truck comes out, and there's a collision, and Ramlila goes sailing over the handlebars, and the bike goes this way, and he goes that way, and he skids along the pavement, and you know it's a bad wreck. He just gets up and walks away. Nothing happens to him. And he is absolutely convinced that Swamiji saved his life, which I am also convinced. And the fact that Swami let me print the story is a confirmation. Swami never touched his bike after that. Never. He absolutely insisted that he had to have it. He drove it until he had the accident. And then once he had the accident, there was some, I believe there was synchronicity about the timing. I don't think it was to the minute, but there was synchronicity about the timing. He just, he took the karma. Then that was done. Bike was never important again. Never mentioned it. Just, it just went away. How do, how do they know? I think with Swamiji, and I presume that this is true for all of these souls, Master writes this in Conversations number 99, this delicate balance between being human and being omniscient. Master actually comments about how it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit hard kind of to do the edge because Master was saying, you need to tell me important things that are going on with other devotees and so on. And the obvious thing is the devotee said to Master, but don't you know? And then he sort of says, well, God knows, but I don't always know. And then he talks about the difficulties of balancing the two pieces of it. The way Swamiji put it, and very interestingly, and he put it in terms of Swami's own awareness. of, He said that the ego, has ex- the ego is one reality and the soul is another. And the more advanced you become, the more the two simply merge. And the ego is always conscious of what the soul is doing. But often, the ego doesn't know what the soul is doing. So the soul is acting on a superconscious level, but the way Master puts it, it's sort of like the ego self, or in Master's case, the individual incarnated self, isn't always paying attention. But It could know, but it chooses not to know. I'm I'm guessing, but it's interesting. The The way I watched it with Swami was like this. He did not analyze. And see, most of us analyze. Most of us look at an option, we analyze its potential, we make a decision, and then we go forward. Even if we do that very quickly, we tend to analyze it. Swamiji, because um, because he he, he never let his attention linger on the past, past, and he never tried to anticipate the future. He just lived right in the moment. And in the moment, his consciousness was attuned. And so, and he was very confident 
from long experience that he would just go with whatever the inspiration was. And he wouldn't know, he wouldn't analyze where it was going or why he was doing it. He would just be sure that this is what he was supposed to do. So I'm sure that the impulse to get a moped was just that he needed to get a moped and he needed to drive it. And he didn't need, and it wasn't like some of us would say, well, I don't need to know why, I just know I'm supposed to. Even that thought wouldn't enter because that would be anticipating the future, second-guessing the past, instead of just flowing with the energy that's right there. And so many, many times when I saw him uh, participate in some really interesting unfoldment, it wouldn't be that he wouldn't know what was going to happen, but he wouldn't... uh, It it wasn't... When I asked him once, did you know it was going to work out this way about something that happened? He says, well, I'm not surprised. Meaning that if the energy, he he wasn't surprised as the energy unfolded. But it wasn't like he had it plotted out. You see how different that is? It's very subtle, but it's one of those things where the difference between affirming an attitude and trying to behave properly and actually having the consciousness. You see the difference? So he just had the consciousness. If Divine Mother tells me to do it, I'll just do it. I don't have to know why. I don't need to know why. It doesn't occur to me to ask why. So even a further level on it. Whereas in the, in the Festival of Light, when the, it gets to be night and the little bird can no longer see and understand what it's doing, it asks the desperate question, how can I fly in this darkness? And to me that always means, how can I just trust um, this moment? Don't I need to know where I'm going and what's happening? But if you're really in the spirit, there is no other moment. There's really just this moment. Dave Bingham is making a a video for the Moksha Mandir weekend, and he he called and just asked, he's asking a few people to just give a very brief, like, summary of something unique about Swami. I've given him several, but I've forgotten about this one. This was one. I wanted to speak of this one. You know, how completely he lived in the now. And, what, and how so much of what he was able to do was because he was so completely in the now. And therefore he could just, he could see solutions when no one else could see solutions. Because we were influenced by the past and anticipating the future. And therefore often just, often really missed um, just the, the beam of intuition that's just right in that moment. I, now that was all about taking karma, which is really what I was really wanting to say. Because this is about how everything is vibrations and nothing actually is what it seems. Which, it, to me, is an extremely powerful thought because whenever we get caught emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and we, and we have this idea that what we just experienced actually exists. And we, we bind ourselves. Do you understand? We bind ourselves by thinking that there is an actual form to something and therefore that form binds us. I'm upset about this. My feelings have been hurt. My attachments have been disappointed. My loved ones have not behaved in a certain way. Naturally, I feel upset. It's only natural that I feel upset. And it may only be natural that you feel upset. But upset doesn't exist. It's just a vibration. And that vibration could be just shifted by the slightest turn uh, of, of your attention. For one thing, it only exists because you're concentrating on it as soon as you're concentrating on something else. I mean, it is the strangest thing, isn't it? 
when your, vibra- your own vibration shifts. You're sad, and then you're fine. And then, wow, you're sad again. And I often say to myself, where did that come from? And I can reason it out. There's a vritti in the chakra and so on. But why didn't I notice it a minute ago? Well, because my astrology is, you know, but it still is not really there. And, and the levitating of the saints, and Swami explains it with the Udana current, but the levitating of the saints is just showing us that nothing is this world that we think is, has to be this certain way. Devotion just cuts across all of it. We, we attach ourselves to another reality and everything, even, even gravity, which is one of the most fundamental realities, supposedly, of this planet, is powerless against devotion. Everything is powerless against devotion. Fascinating, isn't it? Any, any questions or comments? I, uh, I recently discovered uh, uh, the writing or the story of a, a woman who lived through... She was a Jewish woman in Amsterdam who was killed by the Nazis. And her name is Eddie Helsham or something like that. And uh, I'd never even heard of her before. She, she published extensive diaries and extensive letters. I, I think that would be too much to read. I found a summary of her life, a life unfinished or an unfinished life or something. I can't remember the name of it. But she, she was a highly intellectual um, person. And basically, her writings span about two years, she, about when she was about 27 until she was 29. And she died when she was 29. But she... she completely on her own, without any help from anywhere, just discovered, well, that's not true, she had a mentor, but she discovered Sanatana Dharma, she discovered the presence of God within, she discovered meditation, she discovered her own reality and had navigated in an extremely interesting way through those horrible years and to her death. But what she began to understand, this is the way she put it, She said, everybody is trying to save their diamonds, their furs, their furniture, and their bodies. She said, they don't understand that all of those are just empty shells, and the only thing that you really have is the presence of God within you, which nothing can take away from you. And that she was trying to, I mean, she wasn't proselytizing because she was mostly writing, but she was trying to help people around her to save the only thing that mattered, which was that we are a temple of the divine. And if we save the divine, we've saved everything, whether we live or die. It's very, very, very interesting. Extremely um, different. Eddie Helsham, or Helsham, something like that. And the book is called A Life Something or Another. I, th- I believe if you tried to read the collection of her letters, it would be too much. Yeah, I, I, I took the summary. I th- and the summary has been quite, quite interesting. And she writes, you know, she was Jewish. She was a completely non-practicing Jew, no relation to religion at all, really. She becomes dev- devoted to Jesus, to the New Testament, but all from the Sanatana Dharma point of view. Just discovered it. And so then she, this whole experience of you know, these terrifying, horrible years and all the suffering that everybody goes through and ultimately her own death becomes for her just a practice in, in not letting go of the only reality there is. Is she in a 
So, number five, number 341, mastery over the samana, samana, balancing energy in the body, gives off a bright radiance. A disciple of Swami Muktananda, well-known yogi in India, told me that he had left his guru one evening and was walking down a dark road. His guru sent a blazing light from his body that made the way clear for him as long as he needed it. That's why in higher ages there's not much stuff. Who needs stuff? Who needs a flashlight or a little phone with a flashlight app on it? You just turn on the light. It is well known, of course, that saints have a bright aura of light around them. They can also, they can also control this emanation. Yogananda met a wandering sadhu, Karapatri, at the Kumbha Mela in 1936. Years later, he told us, I hid from him. Yogananda said, I hid from him so that Karapari might speak freely. His meaning was that he had withdrawn his aura so that Karapari, Patri, I might don't have my glasses on, so that Karapatri would consider him an ordinary seeker. Wow. There's an amazing story about Ramakrishna. At a certain point in Ramakrishna's life, because of his enormous spirituality, his skin began to glow golden. And it, it was so eminent that it began to draw attention. And it wasn't the right time in Ramakrishna's life for that to happen to him. And there's a, it's told he sort of went up on a rooftop and he was going, go back in, go back in, go back in. And he was very childlike about everything that happened. But he, he drove the light back in because it was too disruptive to whatever stage he was in. Later, you know, he allowed it to show. I was actually also thinking, and this was um, for, uh, this was also for Dave Bingham, but this is something I thought about a lot. People often ask me, because I knew Swami for so long, if he was, if at the end of his life he was different than he was at the beginning of his life. One of the things, when I, when I wrote the book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, and I thought I was going to write a progressive a conventional biography, starting at the beginning and going to the end. And I was having trouble doing that. And then I would thought maybe I'd try to put myself in the story somehow. But what I was explaining to people was I couldn't, I, there was no plot because my relationship with Swamiji was formed in, in less than a minute. And my perception of Swami took no time either. It just happened. There it was. It was fully formed. So there, that's in fact exactly how Swami felt about Master. But there was no, I couldn't, I couldn't tell a long story of learning anything because <laughs> there was nothing like that. So at the end, you know, the last years of Swami's life when his manner became so different, people often ask me if, I, if, I, if he was different than he was when I first met him. And I said, no, because I just, the consciousness that I perceived, I perceived it immediately and I perceived it all the way through. I said Swami's expression of his own consciousness, though, has radically changed. Because during m- many of those years, you know, 35 of 40 or 40 of 45, Swamiji kept it all very much inside. He had a tremendous amount of work to do and he had to really concentrate on that work. He, um, he was very intent on not playing the guru game. Um, Not only did he not want to play that for himself, 
But he also very powerfully wanted to keep the attention on Master, on Yogananda, not on himself. And his role was so prominent in our lives, and especially through the 70s, 60s and 70s, when, you know, there was kind of a, I don't know what you would call it, a plethora of gurus. There's a plague almost of gurus everywhere on the West Coast. And, uh, I mean, there was uh, our favorite one was the one who published his... Uh, his biography, and you know, there was this life, and then he was, you know, I think he was both Krishna and Rama in previous lives, you know, it was all just listed there. <laughs> he was like, the, the summary of who this man was, was this, and this, and this, and this, and he was every great soul that there ever had been, had been him. He did not last. Um, <laughs> so, it, Swami was very intent, and, and in other places he said, for example, you know, the world doesn't need more gurus, they need examples of what it means to be a disciple. So he very deliberately played that role. And he went like that. Well, and essentially, well, it's, it's more like it just, he never let it, he never let it show. And if you think about it, he rarely, um, at the end of his life, literally, he would just say Master's name and he would weep. And he would just tell us over and over again about how he met Master and what it meant to him. He just, he just let, he, he gave up any effort to pay attention to anything else. But all those years prior to that, he did many, many, many other things because that was the appropriate expression for that time. So it would be easy to imagine that his, that his consciousness shifted. And so this was my experience. I just, because I had to answer honestly, I just said, well, I've experienced him the same all the way through. So actually I asked Swamiji because he... I get to do that sometimes. I got to do that sometimes. This is where people ask me this. My answer is that your consciousness has always been the same, but the way you express it has changed. I said, can I say that? Yes, he said. You can say that because it's true. And that was just where it was left. You know, it's, a, it's a quite a, weird, a strange game. And Master, too, he, he uses Karipatri as an example, but Master told Swami that often when Master would visit, you know, saints, he... He would not put himself forward, but also much of the time they also recognized him immediately, treated him very differently. What's to say? Yeah. You just have to be humble in the face of all of this, actually. So questions or comments about that? And that's a whole different issue than, you know, actually glowing in the dark, okay? <laughs> uh, just a quick comment. Nitai said the same thing. About Swamiji? Well, yeah, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Yeah. Because it's just, if you were listening, if you were paying attention, but he made it very difficult. Let me phrase it differently. He did nothing to make it easy at the beginning. He, he did his very best to just not give off anything extraordinary, and you had to really intuit it. When it became understood, I actually thought it was really sort of too bad, because then people look around and see how they're supposed to respond, and then they respond that way, or try to, which is very different than having no idea how you're supposed to respond and then having to have it be genuinely sincere. So it's, it's a tricky thing. That's, this is the cycle of everything. Okay. Number 342. Samyama on the ear's ability to hear and the akasha, subtle pre-space, subtle pre-space, gives one the ability to hear supernormally. Space itself, Yogananda taught, is a distinct vibration 
separating the physical from the astral universe. That's why we can't see the astral world, even though the astral world is right here on another vibration, but there's actually an interfering vibration. So, I mean, this is something that the yogis always know. They, They know, they can see these different vibrations. So it's not merely that... Uh, it's floating around with us. It's there's a veil over it, and that veil is what they call ether, space. Samyama, samyama on the connection between hearing and the subtle reality of pre-space, sometimes called the ether, grants one the ability to hear astrally. That is a mouthful, and I think we're just going to just move right along. I mean, I, I've always found the fact, you know, uh, when, when we're talking about the chakras, you know, this is air and this is ether. And that ether is not the stuff, that you, the gas that you put over your face that puts you to sleep. Ether is a more subtle vibration than air. Air is contained. Air is a, a, a grosser form. If you're descending from the pure spirit, you know, there's the pure spirit, then there's the ether, then it goes to air. I mean, air looks like the last one to us, but there's a more subtle reality behind it. And so that part of it has always been an important, uh, just an important part of the teaching. Yes? Akasha? Does that that relate to the Akashic records? It certainly must, doesn't it? Yeah. So the Akashic records are out there in that dimension of reality, seemingly. Swami, you know, the, the Akashic record is that vibration where everything in creation is contained. So we are all beyond ourselves again. Yeah. So, um, again, we, we talked last time about the ability to hear without the intervening power of the senses and how vicarious the senses are compared to the direct perception. So we would hear, you know, sound is a vibration. So you would, you would be able to hear the ohm. You would be able to understand any th- things without the intervening necessity of getting it through the senses. You would know it directly. Hear people's thoughts. If you're hearing people's thoughts, there's no intervening um, you know, it's, their thoughts do not go through the ear and then go to the brain. Somehow you're hearing it directly, aren't you? That would be, a, I mean, people talk about, I can hear your thoughts. Or I remember Swamiji, once when I was, uh, and Seva and I were there one evening, and uh, I, 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 I moved into an uncharacteristically um, silent place within myself. My little squirrel brain actually just shut off briefly. And Swami was sitting talking to Seva and I was out of sight behind him. And he suddenly said, I, without looking around, Asha, are you still in the room? I said, yes, sir, I'm back here. He said, why don't I feel your mind? I said, because it's uncharacteristically silent. And he sort of went like this. Oh, yes, there you are, he said. <laughs> and he never turned around. He just, you know, and it was right. He was right. My normal vibration was not in the room. You know, what, what, what is he responding to? It, you know, very interesting. But that's the kind of thing he's talking about, where you can hear, feel, without having to go through the senses. It's all direct. You're, all, you're direct, directly experiencing the vibrations. And we actually do that a lot more than we know. It's just that we don't think about it while it's happening. You yeah. remember how uh, you tell the story of, after some number of years or decades with Swami, you... 
You thanked him for never noticing, never commenting on your age. Never using it also to yeah. say he, the obvious, which is you inexperienced little twit. Why are you bothering to express your opinion? Yes. And he said, <laughs> and he said I never noticed. Yeah, I never noticed. I, I told, he never, ever, ever, com well, he certainly never commented, but he, he never seemed to discern the, the difference between us chronologically, or experience for that matter, of course. And that was when I, I thanked him. And, and then he said, I never noticed. I don't think of people as their age. What's your body? You know, what, what is your body? It has nothing to do with your actual anything. He always would just respond, he said, even children, just respond to the vibration of their consciousness and respond, therefore, appropriately, which he always was, but not based on anything chronological. Um, I, had a, I had another thought, and let me see if I can remember what it was. Where were we before about ears and thoughts? Oh, because I had the unpleasant experience of being in a deposition in the course of the lawsuits, the SRF, um, the Ananda SRF lawsuits, um, and our lawyer trained us how to take a deposition, which is in a deposition you are required to answer the questions that you're asked, but you're not required to add, answer the questions that they should have asked. <laughs> you're only required to to respond to exactly what they ask you. And of course, there are many famous examples of how people really misuse this, but when you're defending yourself and you, you don't want to help them, you don't, if they don't know it, it's their problem. It's not your obligation to tell them. So you have to learn to listen to their words, which it wasn't, once I got the hang of it, it wasn't that difficult for me to do, but it was amazing it was an amazingly instructive experience because I realized how much of communication is not at all in the words. You know, there's an enormous transfer of information, of intention, of consciousness. And we're constantly responding to that, thinking that we're responding to the words, but we're not really. So when, when I was, you know, instructed on penalty of our lawyer stepping on my foot under the table <laughs> to really hear what he'd ask and only answer that, I mean, of course, you know, communication went to a hair's width. It was fascinating to see it. Now, you know, only a weird situation like that will really bring it out. But because it did, you really saw what was going on. That's where Sri Yukteswar said, try to discern behind the confusion of men's verbiage what it is that they're really saying to you. Uh, I've had friends who, one friend in particular who shall remain nameless, for whom English was really not their native language, but the problem was they didn't really have one. And uh, that person would actually literally just sometimes use the opposite words of what they meant. But I had such an intuitive connection that they would just say the opposite words and I, I knew what they meant because <laughs> it just was bothersome to, to put thoughts into word for that particular dear soul. So they would just put random words out there and then that would be it. Uh, oh, this is one more story, only peripherally related. This was an example of the subconscious. Many of you know that for five years here, I worked, I think it was five whole, whole years, I did the costumes for the school plays, which I absolutely loved with a, an uh, undying passion. I loved doing it. But it was uh, six weeks of solid, un unrelenting work. And it just was more than I really should be doing. So I had to withdraw from it. But during the time that I was doing it, 
I thought that everyone else found it as fascinating as I did. And um, I, I tried the patience of my friends by talking about it a lot and describing to them minute details and small solutions I'd found to problems they weren't the least bit interested in. And it was my constant uh, conversation. I would just wait for a break in the action so I could tell them about the jewels I put on the crown and the trim I put on the shirts. And and it it got to be kind of a joke. Um, And people really didn't want to hear, and they made it clear that they didn't want to hear. So I was sitting somewhere once in the middle of a play season, just holding myself in with everything I had and somehow the room started teasing me people in the room started teasing me and they just they went on for quite some time about my obsession and their disinclination and so on and I I took it all in good spirit but when they finished my subconscious mind this is what my subconscious mind fed me they're all talking about costumes let me tell them And I almost started to tell them some obscure fact that they were not slightly interested in because all that I had heard, because I had just filtered it through my own desires, all that I had heard was that they were talking about the subject. And I was like there before everything caught up with itself. I mean, is it any wonder that communication is so impossible? Well, let's take a break. (laughs) So we move into 3.43. Samyama on the relationship between the physical body and pre-space, ether, gives the body the lightness of cotton fiber. The common expression today is the lightness of a feather and makes it possible to travel astrally. It is well for every devotee, regardless of whatever powers he may develop, to meditate on the non-existence of his body except as thought. One benefit to him will be that both physical and emotional pain will affect him much less, or indeed not at all. As for the ability to fly, levitate, or travel in his astral body, many accounts from the lives of saints testify to this ability. Once when I pleaded with Ananda Moima to come to America, she replied, I am there already. Either she was referring to her spiritual omnipresence, the more likely explanation, or to her ability to move about astrally. Padre Pio, a great saint in South Italy, many times demonstrated this ability also. For example, by by travel to devotees of his in America. There's also stories of Padre Pio in the war, um, uh, Pilots. I mean, there's several stories of pilots seeing him essentially in the sky in front of them. I don't know whether he was protecting them from bombing certain places or guiding them or protecting them from being shot out of the sky, but they just saw him there, you know, out the window of the airplane, you have to understand. So he did quite a few remarkable things. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting as a way to lessen emotional and physical pain. I mean, that was, that was a very practical, um, a, because all of us uh, are keen on ways to uh, lessen the pain that we experience. Um, floating free from this, uh, the confining force of this, it's harder to do it when the pain is um, on you, because the pain then has your attention. 
So what he's suggesting to us is that we um, meditate on it, meditate on the non-existence of the body. I mean, it's just, there's so, uh, there's so many creative things we can do with our meditation. You know, with, instead of just kind of in a rote way going through uh, one technique after another. But try to, while we're meditating, just not, not think that there's anybody meditating. Just realizing that the body is just an arbitrary vibration in the midst of the cosmos and what really distinguishes it. And we can have lots of fun too when we're just out and about, just doing things. You know, where what really does make me different than um, the products at Walmart. <laughs> you know? I mean, when you're just walking around just anywhere, why is it that we are always so conscious of what this body is and where it is? I, I don't have many mirrors in the house where I live now. In fact, if you happen to wander upstairs into the uh, bathroom that's off my bedroom, it had uh, this huge, you know, I didn't, we didn't build the house. It had the big half wall of mirrors that are all the medicine cabinets and I lived with it for a few years and one day I realized that every time I stepped in there it showed me my body every time and um and every time I would look and I would I would be it would affirm to me that I had a body and I would think about the hair and I would notice the wrinkles or think about this I mean it wasn't like I was preening every time but it was very difficult to walk by it without cognizing it. And just one bright day, it just occurred to me, I could cover up this mirror. And I went and I got uh, white contact paper and I just covered the whole mirror because I don't need it. I'm not, it's not like I'm uh, a movie actress that has to live off her face or something like that. You know, you just have a little mirror over here, that's all you need. Amazing, the difference it made. And it wasn't vanity. It was just that I just wasn't constantly reminded. Because we walk around inside our own consciousness. And we're not, we don't necessarily think about this. A, a dear woman friend who's quite brainy in her inclination toward life actually said she was 45 before she knew she had a body. <laughs> because all her life experience was just her brain and her thoughts. And it just, she, she just didn't notice what was carrying it around. And then one day she noticed, and for, in her case, it was helpful for her to realize she had one. It helped ground her a little bit. But, f- but the other side of it is devotee. So you really have to ask yourself questions like that. What is? It, 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 was, a, it was delightfully beneficial to just not have to see yourself all the time. But there's, of course, much bigger levels to take it. But any way that we can take it really helps. I mean, this whole, this Naya Swami costume not having to dress the body specifically every day with specific thought and therefore look in the mirror and therefore see. And I had to learn to do those things partly because I was a little like that other woman. I had to develop some um, appropriate sense of person. Plus for the first decades when we were living here and we were trying to uh, persuade people of the dignity of this teaching, it was simply necessary to maintain a certain level. Um, but, but five or six years ago, whenever it was, when we started being able to be sannyasis and to dress in the little uniform, I realized, I, mean, I was just thinking about this very recently, somehow it's, it's, it's really finally 
I have sufficient numbers of clothes, comfortable clothes, clothes that I don't have to think about, that I really go many days without cognizing the fact that I've had to dress myself. And of course, that's one of the many advantages, and that's why religious orders often do this. It just doesn't... It's just one more way that you can let it go. I'm not saying that you ought to. Long, before we became sannyasis, I uh, used to see Vanamali Devi, who's this wonderful uh, uh, spiritual woman from Rishikesh, and she declared herself um, devotee of Krishna and put on these la- lavenderish clothes, lavender color clothes, Krishna's color, and, and just started wearing her own uniform. And I often thought to myself whether I could do that before the sannyas vow came. But I, it wasn't sincere. That's what I decided. If I had done it, it would have been affected. It wasn't like a spontaneous expression of my nature because I really liked my clothes and I really enjoyed that opportunity. And if I had forced myself against it, it just wouldn't have worked. But nonetheless, when the opportunity came... So that's small, but not really, depending on who you are, whether that's small or not. But in every way that you can think of, that is not... Now, you have to realize this. You have to maintain dignity. You have to maintain consideration for the people who have to look at you, which is a really big thing. You have to respect our position as disciples of Master, that we're representing him. You have to respect the society we live in. There was a point where Swamiji traded in his um, really old and clunky car for a better car because he said, basically, if, if we look too poor people will think there's something wrong with our teaching. And so you have to, we have to impersonally assess our own position in this. But the more that we can just move through the world without attaching ourselves to this force, this body that we live in, and the more when we meditate and you begin to feel a little freedom, Master has all different visualizations for just dissolving the body and seeing yourself as just a little dot floating. Some of the Death uh, and return stories are so interesting. I don't remember which one. It might have been that doctor who died, the one who was hooked up in the ICU for seven days while he was gone, completely brain dead. But somebody was trying to explain what it was like to be conscious, to be conscious in an infinite void and have no physical reality at all. And and they were trying very hard in the words to explain. He was moving through something that had no dimensions. He was completely there and himself, but he he wasn't wearing any garment. And the garment meaning a physical body. There was no physical reality to him. He was just a pinpoint of consciousness. It's, It's really fascinating to just imagine that. And sometimes, you know, in meditation, you begin to move into that. You realize that you haven't cognized your edges. You're just somewhere floating out there. You're just the energy going into the spiritual eye or whatever it might be. And Master encourages us, Swamiji encourages us to just go there as much as we can and see where it can take us. Okay? Any comments or thoughts? Okay, number 344. By Samyama on the Vrittis, the eddies of attachment and desire that are external to the body, bodilessness is attained and the veil over the light of the self is removed. 
in seeing the subtle relationship between that which is beyond the body and the body itself, one loses consciousness of the body. I can't really go there very far with any of this. But I, I did hear attachment and desire. I was remembering, I've quoted this before, where Swami said, uh, Master said, Swami said, Most, uh, spirit is center everywhere, circumference nowhere, but we are very uncomfortable without a circumference. So we create a circumference. And that circumference that we create, bodily identification, and then we create all these vrittis of attachment and desire. And what do those do? They create limitations to our consciousness, don't they? You know, this is what I'm attached to, this is who I am, this is what I desire. And all of a sudden, that, you know, undefined flow of consciousness now has points that it can grip. And, and it's a, a, it's a security for us to do that. That's why we don't let them go. Because we, we really don't, aren't really quite sure what we would be if we, if we didn't have these things, if we weren't attached in this way or defined in that way. Say again? The unknown. And it's not, it's not like that is a conscious thought. Oh, you know, I better love my coffee or love my pets or love my garden or love my house because otherwise I'll become infinite. It's not, it's not that kind of... I mean, actually, the masters do that. Swamiji said master collected umbrellas and opals and canes. And when Ramakrishna, sometimes when he, as he was coming out of very high states of consciousness, he would want a hookah to smoke because they were just trying to do something to hold their bodies to this world. They were trying to find things to attach themselves to so they could remember who they were and who the, what they were supposed to be doing. For us, it's, you know, there, there's very deep-seated fears that are moving us all the time. You know, fear of loss, fear of disappointment, attachment to this and that. And so we're always, we, are, we do continually hold these things because we, we're really not um, comfortable with the idea of not being defined by anything. That's the story of the disciple trying to get Master to give him super consciousness, samadhi, and finally Master offered, but could you really take it? No, sir, I don't think I could. And Rajasi said to someone, if I gave you that kind of freedom, you wouldn't be able to bear the consciousness you're normally in. But for most of us, we're used to this. It's familiar. And we're comfortable with it. And the unknown is not that attracted to us. Theoretically, yes. But in actuality, what would we really do? If, if, if we couldn't have... If, if I wasn't this, who would I really be? I, I've, I've been very conscious of the... Um, well, I guess you see the fact that I like my attachments. I mean, not really, but I do. How else, how else can I say that? that I'm not ready to surrender a lot of things. I still have points of view that I want to have asserted. It's even the things that are painful. You don't, want, you don't really want to let them go. What would I become if I didn't have this anymore? I know it's a stage of grief that people talk about. A um, woman who lost, whose husband died. You know, she reached that point where if she stopped grieving, then he would be gone. It's a, very, it's a very commonly documented thought. If I really let go and just get happy again, then it's over. 
And so that's what I meant by there's a certain attachment to it. You, there's a, if, if I really just let go of this resentment, this means nobody's ever going to make it up to me. That's, that's the one that I sort of saw. Oh, as long as I keep demanding an apology from the universe for God knows what wrongs were done to me and who knows when, then maybe I'll still get it. But if I really just let it go, then yeah, I'm never going to get it. It's over. I'm going to have to just expand. <laughs> it does, but it's odd how we don't do it. <laughs> but, he, but he says, you know, just meditate on the fact that none of this really exists. See where it goes. Yes. Remember how Gyanamata talked about um, how she had to give up everything, even Ru? Even those that harmed no one, even those things that were mine by right. All of those had to be relinquished too. She might be, but she's also Who knows what she's talking about? She's talking about everything. Attitudes, self-definitions, expectations, everything. Yeah, and so it's, it's easier to start with not being a body in many ways, and then you have to realize I'm not my thoughts. And here it is, by Samyamas on the Vrittis, the eddies of attachment and desire that are external to the body, meaning that are not, in, you know, that are an, yet a separate reality. Bodilessness is attained. I suppose that because the connection between the two is broken. You know. Yes. I wonder if, you know how Samyama started after Samadhi. Mm-hmm. And Reminding us, yeah. I'm beginning to think that perhaps one thing that Patanjali's doing here, he's t- he's leading someone who's got to Samadhi. He's leading him through. Yeah, exactly. Their- no, he's he's finishing the job. That's what. That's why we're we're doing this so that when we uh, need this, we'll remember that we know it. <laughs> Number three forty-five. By samyama on the gross and subtle elements of the body and on their essence and correlative purpose, one can master those elements. And Swami does not bother to comment, so I won't either. 346, from this realization, comes power over the animating principle and other cities, powers or perfections, bodily perfection and non-obstruction to the body's function, which is to say the eradication of all illness or disease. The cities are listed as eight in number. Anima, the power to become very small. Mahima, to become very large. Laghima, very light. Garima, very heavy. Prapti, the power to reach anywhere, even to the moon, and to pass unobstructed through anything. Prakamya, the power to have any wish fulfilled. Isatva, the power to create. Vasitva, the ability to control everything. Oh my gosh. One can have developed all the eight cities, however, and still not have achieved final freedom in God. (laughs) They are a temptation for the ego. Yogananda told the story of Baba Garaknath, a famous saint in northern India whose spiritual power enabled him to live for 300 years 
When it was time for him to leave his body, he wanted to pass these powers on to a worthy recipient. And through the spiritual eye saw a young man seated in lotus posture on the banks of the Ganges. He materialized before this youth and solemnly announced, I am Baba Goraknath. Goraknath was very well known in his times. His manifestation might have stricken the much younger man with awe. It did not do so, however. So, he replied, (laughs) the young man said, what may I do for you? And then the Baba answers, over a period of 300 years, I have developed all the eight cities of Patanjali. Now you see, here's a very great saint. He's been reading Patanjali. He recognizes, you know, this is an answer to sort of Patanjali's, it was his guidebook. I have seen that the time has come for me to leave this body. I have also seen that you are a worthy recipient of these powers. Now, how do you think about this? I have condensed their essence into eight pellets of mud. You have but to hold these pellets in your right hand and meditate on their essence, and those powers will become absorbed into your being. The young man says, Are these mine to do with as I wish? Baba says, yes, I have given them to you. I have no further use for them. The young men threw all the eight pellets into the river where they dissolved and disappeared. Then Baba says, what have you done? You have destroyed the fruit of my labors over 300 years. This is the weirdest story. In delusion still, Baba Garaknath demanded the young man. In that moment, Baba realized his great mistake and achieve complete soul freedom. My my little handwritten note is, what a weird world. (laughs) I mean, what a story. Every aspect of that story is just really odd, isn't it? There he was, 300 years. He wasn't liberated, but he was so advanced. All of the sutras of Patanjali were fulfilling themselves in him. You know, he was reading it and recognizing it. He wasn't guessing at it. He wasn't having an intellectual discussion. He just saw that, yes, I do this, and this happens, and I'm doing that, and that happens, and he has this little list. It's all there. Now, how does all that get into eight pellets of mud? You know, and then when that mud is being thrown into the river, that what does, is Baba losing the powers when they're thrown into the river? Is he just feeling that he's squandering them? And then all of a sudden the whole, the whole thing shifts and he realizes, oh, that's not really what realization was all about. And it's an incredible story. Don't you just love India? Just where, th- where things like this are told and retold and everybody gets to dwell on what the possibilities of this are. Um, Marcel Vogel, who was a very far out guy that was a friend of Swamiji's and a friend of Ananda for a while. Marcel was really... Um, a lot into crystals and things like that. This is in the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. And he had an arrangement with IBM. He was an employee of IBM. They paid him to think. And the only condition of his employment was whatever he invented they owned. And that was his job. And so he was very far out and he invented many things and worked perfectly for him because then he was just paid to be creative and to be imaginative and they got the benefit and he got the freedom in his life. That was really his job. And he would have many visions and, and he, he did a lot with crystals. I don't have any practical ideas, but of course you can guess in this valley what kind of work he might have done. But he would have visions of things and he would see things a lot. And 
apparently they discovered somewhere um, some pieces of crystal that are carved into skulls. These are famous finds. They're ancient finds. And Marcel claims that when he held one of those skulls, which he was able to do, he had a vision of the whole thing and what it was about. And he went back. It was back in Atlantis or one of those a very advanced Satya Yuga age. And he said, this is how education took place. And he saw this picture. There was a, a a temple or something like that. And an old man came in and everything in his consciousness was transferred into the skull. And then a young person came in and everything that was in the the crystal was transferred into the young person. And that was education. (laughs) Just completely... You know that that that, and then and that's a little bit of what's being described here. How can that kind of achievement be put into pellets and then you hold it in your hand? I, it's just I just I don't have any way to say it except there it is. That's the story, and so every piece of it must have some truth to it. So it makes us humble, makes me humble, makes me real humble, gives me a little bit of this power to become really really small, <laughs> whichever it was. <laughs> But also, um, what's the word? We remember when Master had that uh, samadhi in uh, August of 1948, I think it was just before Swami came. And he, he, for three days, he was with Divine Mother and she took him all over the cosmos. And Master was speaking in Divine, there was a conversation between himself and Divine Mother and the people who were sitting with Master could hear both sides of it. And she, she took him all around and Master said, Oh, so that's how you do it. <laughs> Can you imagine? She was revealing the secrets of the cosmos and he was interested. So it, it, I think it's a very joyous thing to contemplate, actually, just how, how many mysteries there are and how uh, just how, how, how much we can enjoy it. We, don't ha- we, we can't know everything and we don't know everything and we don't have to be wise and all-knowing. We can just be very relaxed and be like little children in this fascinating world. Well, any other comments or thoughts before we go? Uh, Ramani, could you pass the microphone to me? Yeah. It's just, as you were talking, it just reminded me of, this isn't anywhere near understanding how it happens, uh-huh. but... Emoto and the crystals, yeah, and then the praying over the water and the crystals changed. And yeah, so. that was the, the the experiments of that Japanese man who put affirmations on water bottles and then looked at the crystal formation and put bad words on water bottles and looked how the the molecules changed. And it was all very objective. It wasn't, and it, it all subjective. It was just there. It was, yeah. It just. This is not the. This world is very different than it seems, and it behooves us as devotees to behave accordingly. Just as simple as that. You're always in the presence of God, and everything in front of you is a manifestation of the Spirit. And uh, we have to behave appropriately, but also accordingly. Wow. Okay, that's it. Great souls. And tonight we did. Let's see. We started at. We started at 3.40 and we finished with 3.46. Can I have a pen from someone, please? 
And this was class number 60. Yeah, we've been at this a long time. 